Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. We'll talk about the economy, how it could be reconstituted and reorganized on a new basis so that the needs of the people and the planet come before profit. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf, that's W-O-L-F-F dot com, rdwolf dot com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining. Yesterday, the Biden transition team unveiled a economic uh, recovery message. At the same time, a group of bipartisan Republican and Democratic uh, lawmakers unveiled a stimulus proposal hoping to break the stalemate. Now, here, here we have it that the Congress has been able to do, well, absolutely nothing uh, in the recent months be, prior to the election, but here's some of what they said yesterday. A bipartisan group of senators unveiled a $900 billion compromise stimulus proposal meant to break the stalemate in Congress over deliver, delivering additional economic relief to Americans suffering from the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. The proposal, spearheaded by centrist Senators Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, and Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, has not been endorsed either by Speaker Nancy Pelosi or Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican of Kentucky. Designed as a stopgap measure to last until March, it would restore federal unemployment benefits that lapsed over the summer, but at half the rate, providing providing $300 for 18 weeks and does not include another round of checks for every American. Uh, Professor Wolf, on Sunday, 93,000 Americans, 93,000 were hospitalized with COVID. That's the highest number to date. Uh, The country is in the second wave, in some places, the third wave. Millions of people are literally in food lines where close to where I am in Montgomery County, Maryland, the increase in food insecurity, a euphemism for hunger, has increased by 800 uh, percent in the, just the last three months. And here you have a, a stimulus package that is reducing the benefits that Americans started to have in, in, in some small measure, at least 
uh, back in April and May. Anyway, let's get your take. Well, this is this is a joke uh, of the sarcastic kind, of the cruel kind. Um, this is an, an unspeakable example of too little, too late. Uh, I'm not surprised by the two senators who supported it. These are people that are barely taken seriously uh, in either of the parties. Um, uh, Susan Collins squeaked by uh, an election that uh, most people had thought she would lose. Um, It shows you what money can do. But in any case, yeah, this is not serious. I'm at a loss uh, to tell you anything other than the following. This is the worst economic crisis in a century. This is the worst public health disaster slash failure likewise in a century. Uh, Economically, it's the second worst after the 1930s. And in public health, it is the second worst since the uh, so-called Spanish flu influenza of 1918. Um, It demands a correspondingly robust, large uh, response. It demanded that in March and April. It didn't get it. It demanded that in the summer, and it got another one of these stopgap temporary measure, which uh, collapsed and ended at the end of July. And here we are many months since then, Uh, with nothing. And as a result, the unpaid rents confronting millions of Americans, which will no longer help you avoid uh, eviction at the end of this year, that's at the end of this month that we've now entered, uh, not only for families who haven't paid their rent, but for countless businesses that have not paid their commercial rents to the landlords. Those landlords have been going to court, lining up their lawyers to evict both their commercial and their residential tenants, um, promising to dump millions of people into the streets of homelessness at a time when we're telling folks that the best way to protect yourself uh, from the COVID disaster is by staying indoors. We're saying this to people who will have no indoors, washing your hands all the time to people who will not be able to do that, uh, practice social distancing. As I said, this is an unspeakable bad joke because they cut the unemployment benefits for so many uh, on the 31st of July. Those people have now used up, had to use up uh, their savings, if they had any, uh, what they can wring out of their family and friends, uh, if they have any of those left. They're really at their wits' end in this society. The only thing worse than the suffering of, and let's be clear, tens of millions of our fellow citizens is watching the relative handful. The 1% who have made out like the bandits they are over the last six months of national suffering. Uh, And here we have a Congress and a new administration 
carefully avoiding even the slightest hint of taxing those who have made out like bandits as a result of a virus and a failed uh, preparation for an economic crash, taxing them in their gains to compensate those who've lost. Amazon isn't doing better business because of anything it does. It's because of a COVID prevents us from going to a store. I mean, if ever there was a reason to say, look, the gains you've made by the suffering of others has to be compensated by your being a good citizen and sharing uh, the, the, the absence of all of this, the absence of a program to hire the unemployed rather than making 20-odd million of them lapse and sit around the house wondering if they'll ever have a job again. Really, if, if you face honestly the problems of this economy, and then you listen to these two senators come up with a half-baked, way too late program, it really it boggles the mind. And I don't know any other way to get across the horror of this spectacle that we're witnessing. I couldn't agree with you more, Richard. The uh, I want to talk about how this how th- this is like a cascading crisis. It overlaps with other already existing crises of capitalism. And that's what we're talking about. And when we talk about the crisis of capitalism, there could be the crisis of the capitalists, meaning uh, maybe their their profit has gone down or some competitor has beat them out or they can't pay their debt or you name it. The, the problems that come with the 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 bizarre crisis called overproduction, whereby more is produced, including more food is produced than can be sold at a profit. And, and sometimes, or frequently, regularly, in fact, a group of capitalists lose everything, or if they're, they go bankrupt, or if they're lucky, they get swallowed up and become part of some other bigger monopoly process. But then there's the crisis of capitalism for the population. I'm looking at the headline of the Wall Street Journal, this article really is so, I, I think this is so important, so telling. Here, here it is. GM's closed Lordstown factory spawns a wave of industrial migrants. Workers leave their families behind in Ohio in search of good pay and benefits in other states. And it's a picture of this guy. He's obviously the father of this young kid, maybe six, seven years old. He's hugging him. He's about to get in the car. He's obviously leaving. I'm going to read the first couple of sentences and then get your reaction. On Zach Sherry's first day of work at General Motors Company factory in Bedford, Indiana, trainers gave a safety presentation that included an image of a cartoon hand spurting blood from the ring finger. The overt message was straightforward. Rings can get caught in the machinery, so don't wear them on the job. The symbolism wasn't lost on the 48-year-old Mr. Sherry, who had transferred to the Indiana facility after losing his previous job at the GM plant in Lordstown, Ohio, that shut down last year. The transfer meant leaving his family behind one state away 
you just took me 450 miles from my home and you're telling me to take my wedding ring off, he says. Mr. Sherry is one of a cadre of Lordstown workers turned middle-aged industrial migrants venturing out alone in search of good pay and benefits. And when you think about this, uh, Richard, we're we're in a situation, the stock market just hit 30,000, Wall Street celebrating. There's all of these articles in the financial pages about what accounts for this amazing turnaround in the stock market. And then you have America, Lordstown, or Indiana. I mean, Lord, I mean, I remember I was an industrial worker working in an auto-related factory in Rochester, New York in the early 1970s. We all looked at Lordstown. It was huge. It was a center of labor activism. It was a modern plant. Here we are, a wave of industrial migrants in the heartland of the United States. Yeah, my reactions are several. Uh, they overlap. Um, I was born in Youngstown, Ohio, not very far from all of that, um, in an area that has been savaged by capitalism, a place from which capitalists withdrew because they could make more money producing uh, steel, which was Youngstown's specialty. Uh, but it's the same with automobiles. Uh, they produce them now in Canada and Mexico and China and Brazil. They don't do that because those workers are one whit uh, more skilled or more disciplined than Americans. They do it for a simple reason. It makes more profit. They can pay those workers much less. They can buy or bribe their way out of environmental and other limits on their profiteering uh, and that's why they went. The profiteers go to the tiny percentage of Americans who have significant shares in General Motors or Ford or Chrysler or any of the others. Vast numbers of working people are fleeced, lose their jobs in order that a very small minority can make even more profits than they made before. My second reaction is to remember one of the great lit pieces of literature that came out of the suffering of the Great Depression. A book was called The Grapes of Wrath, and the author was John Steinbeck. And he talked about the migrants of that time, the people destroyed by that capitalist uh, collapse in the 1930s, who piled everything they had into the jalopy they were left with and headed off from the middle of the country uh, to go west to California in the vain hope that somehow they would find a better life uh, being migrants, which of course they didn't um, any, in exactly the same way that these desperate uh, GM workers will try to carve a life out hundreds of miles from their family, forced to pay the costs of their travel, uh, the extra expenses. For, it's just, it's all unspeakable. But the only thing that I can add is it's all so unnecessary. Think with me for a moment. We have enormous unmet needs in this country. Enormous. We don't have a Green New Deal. We need it. We don't have a reclamation of the environment we've damaged over 100 years. We could use a lot of help in doing that. 
We have homeless people who need a place in which to live. We can put to work the millions of people that are out of work to do socially useful things that will allow them to stay with their families, to have a decent job, to earn the income they need, to stay in the home they now occupy. Come on, we have done way harder things than that. And we're not doing it now for one simple reason. We don't hire people unless it's privately profitable for someone to do it. Capitalists are in the driver's seat. They will hire if it's profitable, and they won't if it isn't. And we live in a society that permits the minority of employers to make a decision shaping the lives of the vast majority of us who are employees. And we look around now at the absolute disaster, economic, public health, climate, racial relationships. The problems of this failed capitalist system keep piling up. And for me, the only question is, when will people begin to recognize the signs of decline and decay all around them and not be mesmerized, uh, have their lives shaped, their attention distracted by looking at a stock market, which is the playground for the richest people in our society, a tiny minority, playing a kind of monopoly game with vast amounts of new money printed by the Federal Reserve and distributed in the hands of the super rich so that they can bid up the prices of stocks they buy and sell from each other. To look at that and to conclude we don't need more than that pathetic proposal of uh, the two senators, again, it boggles my mind. Richard, I was uh, in preparation for our discussion today. I was thinking about some of these economic stories and sort of poking around and um, I I found this article written by business uh, by well it's Time Magazine, and it's called Karl Marx's Revenge: Class Struggle Grows Around the World. It's published in in 2013. The article contains this famous quote from Marx's writings: "Quote accumulation of wealth at one pole." At the same time, accumulation of misery, agony of toil, slavery, ignorance, brutality, mental degradation at the opposite pole. And Marx is describing there the dynamic of capital, that capital, meaning the private ownership of that which produces wealth, the means of production, and the employment of labor for that purpose, the accumulation of wealth at one pole is at the same time the accumulation of misery, agony, of toil, etc. Now, you know, the American worker was taught, and certainly this was sort of the, the byword within trade unionism, and it was promoted by Wall Street Journal and, you know, all of the, the Chicago school and all of the apologists for capital that what was good for the company is good for the worker. What's good for the company will be good for 
the workers and thus for the union, and that they're all part of the same team trying to have a successful business. And if the business is successful, then the workers will get their share. But you know, when you look at GM, for instance, and we're talking about Lordstown, GM was bankrupt in 2009. It was revived. It was uh, brought back to life by U.S. government subsidies. And as a consequence, it's not bankrupt at all right now. It's doing very, very well. But then we have Mr. Sherry and this this wave of industrial immigrants looking for work. Again, why help help the audience who's just sort of been learning about socialism and Marx's key point here, the accumulation of wealth at one pole is at the same time the accumulation of misery at the other. Why is that? Well, it has to do with the logic of how a capitalist system works. The employers compete against one another. Uh, Each one is afraid that the other one, uh, let's take the car business. Uh, GM is afraid that Toyota will come up with something that makes everybody buy a Toyota instead of a General Motors. Uh, They're afraid that uh, they make every kind of difficulty they can uh, for the Tesla because it substitutes electricity for, for, for fossil fuels and, and making a car move, etc., etc. They're always worried. And that means they're going to spend their money trying to survive. That's what capitalism makes them do. It has nothing to do with whether they're nice guys or not nice guys, whether they're well-intentioned or greedy. Uh, I'm sure you have a, a whole range of these uh, attitudes or predilections among these people, but there's a system that imposes on them. What? To save money at every stage uh, by not paying their workers as much as the workers need, by moving to places where they can pay workers even less. So why? So they can take the money and use it to keep themselves alive, to develop the new technology, to move the production to where the wages are lower. All of those are very, very expensive things. And of course, to look the part by having very expensive offices and very expensive uh, uh, expense accounts where they can take their customers and their clients to the most expensive restaurant in the most expensive resort This is part of how they compete. Every business leader who goes to a Master of Business Administration course, an MBA, learns that one of the tricks of successful capitalism is to, I'll use their language, limit your labor costs or reduce your labor costs. Free that money up for much more profit-enhancing activity. So what do they do? They replace workers with machines because that saves them money on their labor costs. Or they move to low-wage areas. Or they bring in uh, people they can pay less to, children, women, immigrants. You know the story. It's the history of our country. And then they use the money to develop their technology, to move to cheaper places, to come up with a fancy new gimmick, even if it's useless. Uh, That's what they do. And of course, who do they leave behind? All those workers replaced by machines. All those workers replaced by cheaper workers in other countries. So those that social damage they cause, the millions of people whose lives are diminished, 
We're not supposed to pay attention to that. We're not supposed to think through what it means that capitalism advances by saving on labor costs. It sounds so reasonable that we lose the human dimension of it all. You ought to judge a system by how it treats the vast majority of people, not by how wealthy it makes a few. If we use this this notion that we measure capitalism's success by how many billionaires we have in the stock market, that's a little bit like saying, gee, wasn't ancient um, Egypt wonderful because it had a half a dozen pharaohs who left us the pyramids. Someone needs to remind us those pyramids were built by millions of working slaves tens of thousands of whom gave up their lives to pile a stone on top of a stone for the vanity of a billionaire pharaoh. That's what we've got now. We didn't see it before, the quote you have from Marx, how the wealth at one end is paralleled by the poverty at the other end of the system. One of the reasons is capitalism knows that it's vulnerable to Marxist criticism. So it tends to hide the poor. First, capitalism hid them in Asia, Africa, Latin America. We made a corner of the world, Western Europe, North America, Japan, wealthy, and we pretended not to see how the way they got wealthy was by impoverishing the Chinese, the Indians, the Brazilians, the Africans, and so on. Even in the cities, where we live. We take poor people and we stick them in a ghetto or we stick them in that neighborhood over there behind the railroad tracks because we don't want to have to confront and see the truth of Marx's quote that we are paying as a society a spectacular excess price in lives ruined, in health ruined, in education crippled, for the greater wealth of a tiny number of people who are already the wealthiest amongst us. Let me end with an example. We could take away half of the wealth of the several hundred billionaires that we have in the United States. I'll use an example, uh, Jeffrey Bezos. His wealth currently $200 billion. If we took away from him half his wealth, leaving him was a hundred billion. He'd still be one of the 10 richest people in this planet. What in the world are we doing? We could take that hundred billion that leaves him one of the 10 richest people on this planet and use it to transform the lives of millions of our American citizens. If we did that, cut in half, all the wealth of the billionaires, we'd have a lot more money than what those two senators proposed as a program for a nation in deep distress. But we have to worry about how the senators are going to respond to those two characters when we could in one stroke solve the problem better without them if we did something about the absurd inequality this system produces. When you think about it, Richard, uh, cutting Jeff Bezos' wealth from $200 billion to $100 billion 
isn't exactly a revolutionary socialist or communist program. It just, you know, <laughs> it could happen very easily within the context of the existing system. I mean, that would just be actually a modest reform. He would only have a hundred billion left, and there'd be a hundred billion dollars to use for to meet people's needs. Now, when you when you think about when you think about the 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 facts of on the ground for Americans right now, uh, since the crisis began, over sixty million have lost their jobs. Sixty million have filed for unemployment insurance, so more have lost their job. Seventeen million additional people have become food insecure. Again, a euphemism for hunger. That's since the beginning of the epidemic. The a report issued by the nonprofit Feeding America found that fifty. 0.4 million Americans have been identified now as food insecure. 50 million Americans. Up to 40 million people are facing eviction. Uh, and billionaires, the billionaires who you're talking about, they since July, they've increased their total net worth by $637 billion. And uh, Jeff Bezos, who you also mentioned, made $13 billion in additional wealth on July 20th by itself, just that one day in terms of the stock valuation. So we don't actually, to, to, to mitigate these issues, to solve these problems, to deal with people's actual needs, you don't actually need a revolution to overturn capitalism. But in this system, these things actually don't seem to be happening other than through revolution. Because the the Congress, the Senate, the House of Representatives, they have all the tools at their disposal to make these kind of reforms. These are achievable things. Absolutely. And revolutions usually happen when the earlier steps that could have attenuated the problems, solved the problems, moderated the problems, were not taken. And the suffering got worse, and the rage of people who could figure that out got worse. Revolutions are usually made by the people against whom the revolutions are then directed. It's their fault, and they hate to admit it, but we are living through that, that process. And let me give you one concrete example. In both World Wars I and II, here in the United States, the Congress at the time passed what was called an excess profits tax, an extra tax which was reasoned as follows. It's wartime. We're asking American young men and women to risk their lives. Many of them have given their lives. Many more come home injured, their whole lives transformed, and not in a good way by the military experience, etc., etc. It is unconscionable to ask people to make the ultimate sacrifice by going off to war while allowing others who didn't go to war but made their business by having them profit excess off the war. That is, what if they were making 10% before, the war enabled them to make 20%. No, that we will not allow some people to profit from a war that is killing the rest of us. We're not going to do it. And so... If you've made more during the war than you were making on an average of, say, the five years before the war, the excess 
would be subject to a higher tax than you would otherwise have had to pay. Not take all of it, but take a healthy chunk. And what would it be used for? To compensate the families of those who had made the ultimate sacrifice. Okay, so we have that as a precedent. We are currently involved in a war. Trump said it was a war against this uh, virus. Okay, we're in a war, a war which is costing us more than most of our military wars have. More people have died of COVID than have died in most of the wars fought by the American armed forces. So we're in a war, we're suffering like a war. Why don't you have a pro- excess profits tax? If you were making X billion before and you've done better under these horrific conditions of privation for the American people, then your extra is going to be taxed at a much higher rate than you're used to paying to help compensate those who have law. This is, dare I say it, this is a notion of, I don't know, Christian charity, uh, a notion of basic human equality, if something comes along that's nobody's fault, that helps a few and hurts a lot, we ask a few to kick in a little extra to help the many. I mean, how hard is this? But when you don't do it, when you refuse to do it, when you make an offer like Senators Collins and Nuchin and so on, then you are saying to the mass of people, I don't care about your suffering. I'm going to do next to nothing or nothing at all. And when you do that, you bring the revolution closer because you're basically teaching people that nothing short of revolution is going to address their decent, honest, and perfectly appropriate concerns. And I think we are living through it. At this point, using the word revolution scares people, which is just another way to squeeze another few more months out of this absurd deepening inequality as we face the worst economic crisis and the worst public health crisis in a century. It is an amazing disaster to watch unfold. It is indeed an amazing disaster. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many, many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf, that's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolff joins us on Wednesdays in this segment called Capitalism in Crises. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.